0: This podcast is intended for listeners that are 18 years or older. Explicit language, sensitive content, and views that are objectionable to some listeners may be present in the podcast. As such, listener discretion is strongly advised. Please read our podcast terms and conditions before listening to Up the Rabbit Hole.
1: Welcome, everyone, back to Up the Rabbit Hole with Dr. Corey Hrushka, Certified Sex Therapist and Diplomat, and I have Brandy Ends today here, too. And we also have our new guest, Shan Roberts, who's a specialist in trauma.
0: Hello.
2: Good morning. Why
1: don't we get started off? So back to joke of the day. Now, I kind of have two today since. Um, but what I want to do is I want to bring it out to also the, uh, the listeners out there. So if you have some of these old jokes that are reasonably appropriate, um, from back when you were young, I want you to be able to see if you can share those with them. And if we kind of go through and gather a bunch, we'll put them on the air with us so that you can, uh, kind of get credit for some of that stuff or some of the favorite ones you've had.
2: Oh, anyway. I can't wait for that. Cannot wait for that. Sounds good.
1: So here, here's our two for today. So one's a little story and one's kind of a quick joke. So what do you get when you cross a dick with a potato? You <laughs> tell a dictator.
2: Uh, that was another one i
1: remember when i was about nine (laughs) which i probably shouldn't have been accessing at that time anyway we're listening to but yeah you know as a nine-year-old you're kind of always curious about what's going on and so here's another one so a guy sitting in the doctor's office doctor walks in and says i have some bad news i'm afraid you're going to have to stop masturbating the guy says i don't understand doc why Uh, Doctor says, because I'm trying to examine you.
0: Oh. Uh, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I hate
2: it when that happens. I know, right?
1: <laughs> so on to the topic. So today's, again, topic is sexual abuse and trauma. So why do we we, since we have Shan, uh, Shan here today, Shan, why don't you tell us a little bit about trauma? Like, what is it? How you know, what are trauma-based experiences, kind of how is it stored or processed, any long-term effects, even wow, the difference that's, that's a between very, uh, big that's T a, and little t is what I call <laughs> it too. So that's
0: a very big question. So maybe let's start with uh, trauma itself. So if we look at trauma, it's basically anything um, that kind of overwhelms your sense of coping and can result in lasting symptoms. So you don't have to develop post-traumatic stress disorder, you feel traumatized by something. Um, So at the end of the day, you're the only one that decides whether something was traumatizing for you. Uh, You can't, you know, someone can't look at you and say, oh, I bet that was traumatizing because everyone has different levels of resiliency in terms of what they can kind of cope with, like different vulnerability factors, things like that. So But if we're looking at trauma, we can talk about big T and little t trauma. Uh, This comes from, as far as I know, the EMDR model. um, I'm going to suggest that it probably came from another model prior to that, because trauma is certainly not a new thing. Um, So big T trauma is like the big stuff where, you know, sexual assault, maybe car accident, you know, that one time, you know, you were molested by your friend's dad, things like that. So it's, you can look at that event and be like, that was traumatizing. That was traumatizing. That was traumatizing. Little T traumas are like paper cuts. So if you have like one or two paper cuts, it's kind of annoying, but you're like, nah, whatever, I'll get on with it. But if you get like a million of those, you're going to bleed out. So what makes the little t traumas a little bit more difficult for people is because, because they're so small, we actually don't remember the individual events associated with them, but we certainly develop the symptoms of trauma. So, this I often see clients who will come into the office and say, Well, I'm feeling this way, or da 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 da, da but I don't have a trauma history. But then, as soon as we kind of start digging into their childhood, we see, Okay, you didn't feel safe in your house. Um, you know there were issues of neglect, fear of abandonment, all of these things that you can't pinpoint one specific memory, but it was kind of like a chronic and persistent um, experience in the environment. So that can actually be traumatizing over time. Um, so that's kind of the difference. Um, if we look at trauma itself, um, I think it's uh, uh, Sue Harvey. She uh, actually wrote one of the seminal books, I guess, on on trauma. Um so she talks about how trauma survivors actually have symptoms instead of memories. Um so the symptoms that we tend to see in trauma survivors, um some people have all of these, some people have some of these in terms of the clients that I tend to treat, uh I'd say most of them have all of them. So we have depression, irritability, loss of interest, uh feeling numb, uh decreased concentration, Insomnia, feeling emotionally overwhelmed, uh, loss of a sense of the future, feelings of hopelessness, feelings of shame and worthlessness is a big one. Um, Little or no memories. So, this one's kind of interesting because um, oftentimes, especially people who've had childhood trauma, will have memory gaps. So, memory gaps before the age of nine is normal because, in terms of we look at developmentally, those memory centers on the brain or maybe a bit sketchy at that point so because you know because there's so much development going on in the brain your brain's like i don't have time to store memories there's too much so um memory gas four nine not a big deal but if you start noticing you have memory gaps for significant events or longer periods of time after age nine then we kind of want to go hmm why was your brain in survival mode because when our brain is survival in survival mode um it has a harder time forming memories Um, Other things we look for is nightmares and flashbacks. So the traditional flashback is kind of like you disconnect from the here and now you feel like it's the event is happening all over again. So it it overwhelms your senses, it overwhelms kind of your your sense of place in time. Um, and that you actually feel like you're back there. But we also have what are called emotional flashbacks, which a lot of people don't know about. So emotional flashbacks are where, and this happens to everybody, this happens to me too. So you're like in a situation, something happens and you overreact. Like <laughs> your response completely outweighs what that situation would normally warrant. All the time. Right? <laughs> yes, I know I do yes. that all the time too. So basically what that is, is that's an emotional flashback. The problem with emotional flashbacks is they feel like they're very much in the here and now because emotions do not have a timestamp. Memories themselves have a timestamp. You can say, "Oh, you remember that time when da 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 da," but you can't say, "Oh, remember that time when this emotion came up and it was all connected to this and blah 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 blah." We we just can't do it. Emotions are not time stamped, and because trauma is all connected in the brain along like the five senses plus. Um, interoception which is kind of like that internal sense that we feel in terms of our bodily state and connected through um actually memory itself everything is connected in some way and so the when when that kind of chain gets triggered we get this huge emotional overwhelm or this emotional response uh, which is just over the top. So um, other symptoms be like hypervigilance. So kind of feeling like you're on guard, constantly scanning the room. Some people will find that like, if they're in a room, they, ha- they have to sit with their back to a wall facing the door. Right. So that's often mistrust. So the number one thing a trauma survivor cannot do is trust other people. Um, so when I work with clients, I'll say to them like, Hey, there's no, I have no expectation that you're going to trust me. You don't need to trust me to work with me. Um, Other things, generalized anxiety, panic attacks, chronic pain and headaches. So like I said, trauma trauma survivors have symptoms instead of memories. You know, trauma survivors have a lot of pain, chronic pain issues. They have, you know, gastrointestinal issues, all of these things. Um, Substance abuse and eating disorders, feeling unreal or out of body. So that kind of gets into that dissociation piece. Um, And then also too, there's that kind of a loss of a sense of who I am, which is, you know, you just really aren't sure. So those are kind of the main things we tend to see. So I hope that answers your questions.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important to realize that there's a lot of these symptoms and kind of um, to, that occur in here that also co-occur in other diagnoses or other mental yes. health issues, and so yes. it's really important to make sure that you are uh, either really exploring it well or seeking, uh, you know, a professional to be able to help pull it out to see yeah. if it's if it's depression due to trauma or anxiety due to trauma or if it's kind of you know addiction stuff related to that or even not. Yeah. So they don't always have to go together. But there's a but lot. of... You don't of
0: always know if they go together, though, right? Because like some people don't recognize because of the little t traumas.
1: And so, yeah, that's why we want to make sure that we're thoroughly doing that and exploring that so that we're uh, really getting a good understanding of it. So we have a few of the questions um, that, you know, some of the uh, watchers and listeners have kind of brought forward to us. And so, Brandy, do you want to kind of bring those forward? Then we can chat a little bit about them.
2: hundred percent. Yeah. So we have our first question, which reads, uh, I was raped by a family member when I was a child. I'm now having relationship problems. What should I do?
0: Um, So what should I do? I think the fact that you're even acknowledging that perhaps it's playing a role is really important, Um, because if you suspect that it is, it probably is.
1: Yeah, one of the important things, I'm looking at legal indications. So in terms of rape, there are no, in Canada at least from my understanding, there are no statute of limitations. So if there is a history of sexual abuse of a child, that can still be brought forward many, many years later. And so I guess the first question you have to decide is, do you, from a legal perspective, do you want to um, file a an inform like either make a file of a charge or kind of make a statement to the police just yeah. to indicate that has happened just in case it has also yeah. happened to someone else
0: and i think I, that's a very difficult thing because i think um because people do experience lots of feelings of shame and worthlessness and all these other symptoms around history of abuse um that can be very hard because even like even though it can be very empowering you know to kind of make that formal report and you know kind of get going down that legal path, that experience in and of itself can actually be traumatizing. Thank you for bringing that up. So, yeah. it's
1: it's a big thing cuz there's complications with family should you do that. And yep. you have to kind of decide kind of weigh your pros and cons ultimately yeah. on what you want to do given given and, the time lapse, especially and since and, it was it sounds like years ago because this person sounds like an adult.
0: Yeah. And I mean, and family reactions can be run the full gamut. I mean, I've had some Um, clients tell me family members have told them they're making it up, that they don't believe them, Da da da. I've had other clients where they've had their family members being super supportive. And then other family members come forward and say, Hey, that happened to me too with that same person. So I think, you know, it's probably worth sitting down and having a conversation with someone you trust or someone you love or feel safe, reasonably safe with, right? Because trust is an issue and just maybe fleshing out what that could look like, because I don't think I mean, it's a great decision if that's what fits for you. But my thoughts are whenever you make any type of potentially life altering or life changing decision, eyes wide open, know or try to predict what you're potentially getting into. And make sure Um, you're
1: consulting with people to kind of get that information before you make any of those big decisions. Like
0: even call a lawyer and be like, hey, so what are these? procedures normally look like in court. How long do they take? What's the likely outcome? Talk to the police about it cuz you can ask questions without formally making a report. Yeah. Correct.
2: Yeah. Right? Good point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So first step, gather information so your decision is an informed one cuz that can be a really like you
2: said a traumatic road. It's yeah. hard to deal with and no going in knowing that you're going to be thinking about what has happened to you and you're going to be questioned yeah. and you're going to be Kind of poked and prodded per se, which is sometimes really difficult.
0: And unfortunately, you're going to be doubted. And I think that's the hardest part is having that experience invalidated. Because I can honestly say, so dealing with trauma survivors, sometimes the most traumatizing thing is not the event itself, but how people responded to you when you disclosed the trauma. And that can be, because when I've said to clients, you know, when they've entered and like identified maybe a big T trauma, I'll say to them, so what was the worst part? And they'll say, what was how my mom reacted when I told her? It was how my best friend reacted or whomever. That was the worst part for me. Yeah,
1: and I think it's also important to realize that sometimes individuals, when they're doing this process, will be very supportive. So I want to make sure we have a good balanced side between there can be those issues of being you know, prejudiced or discriminated against or even pressured not to. Yeah. And and some that will get very much support. So it's just, yes. make sure you know, your environment so that mm-hmm. you can kind of if you're going to do that path that you're very supported because it, yeah. it can be a bit of a struggle. Yeah. Right. And so the other part of this question that says, I'm now having relationship problems. What should I do now? I guess that's like a big kind of open area because that could be just general relationship problems or sexual problems. And so when you're looking at someone's history, it's really hard to pull that one out because I mean it might not be regarding the rape. It could yeah. be just this is what you've learned from growing up with your parents and and you've never really learned how to have a good relationship. So it's yeah. it's another complex kind of thing to kind of look at as what's causing it and what things you need to learn or what what changes yeah. need to be in there. So I really want to know what those problems would be technically.
0: But I think you hit the nail on the head like it's it can be sexual problems, it can be relational issues because again going back like trust is a huge huge issue. And it's gotten that trust issue has nothing to do with the person necessarily that you're in a relationship with. Now it's that self-protective mode. It's kind of being in that I'm feeling vulnerable. I've been hurt before. I can't take risks because risks are too dangerous for me. And so there's that real tendency to really hold back and not engage. (sighs) So what, so what recommendations yes. can
1: we can we like give to this person regarding this at this point, I think my, my first one would be, I really want to know what those problems are and being able to sit down and write down what exactly those problems are so that they can focus on really getting into that micro skills or find out those components because it's still not clear to me regarding this.
0: When I talk with when i treat clients it's not about going into the trauma and opening up that you know ripping the lid off that container it's about how is it affecting me now let's treat the symptoms and change your relationship to what happened in the past so you don't have to go into the the trauma in in excruciating detail in fact it's not advisable to because that can re-traumatize again right right yeah, but right, i guess yes. in this
1: case because i mean although she was raped as you mentioned earlier she might have not been traumatized in this case yeah yeah so right. it's just really looking at what her what her response is to this yes. to this dynamic is it traumatic is it not how has it impacted her relationship yeah. how yeah. have other factors related to her uh, current relationship problems yeah. and then well, think... kind of going from there
0: and that kind of goes into vulnerability factors too, right? So, someone who comes from a home environment that was really supportive—you had like a really good attachment uh, to a, to an adult figure in your life—da da da da—you da, have all these resiliency skills—is less likely to develop post traumatic stress disorder later in life in response to a traumatic event than someone who grew up in a chaotic childhood environment or an abusive childhood environment. So, you want to read the next one?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Question number two how am I supposed to deal with sexual abuse? Why did I let it happen constantly and for so long? And how come I can't stop thinking about it?
0: So I think we've actually already touched on this a little bit. Um, So how am I supposed to deal with sexual abuse? There is no right or wrong way. You know, everybody deals with things a little bit differently. Some people avoid it altogether. Other people say, hey, I'm going to go talk to a therapist and deal with this, right? Um,
1: Well, I'm sure there could be wrong ways to deal with it.
0: Well, yeah, I guess alcohol and drugs, um, self-destructive behavior. So
1: those those don't tend, yeah, they tend to numb, but but they don't tend to help.
0: But the thing is, is I don't want to be like, I guess, judgmental about that in terms of right or wrong, because it's survival. Like those, if, and even like eating disorders, these are survival skills. If that's the only way you know how to cope and it's getting you through, yes, there's significant, you know, adverse consequences to those behaviors. But you know what? You're doing the best you can. And I think so, our jobs
1: as therapists is to help them get better coping yes. mechanisms and, and work through those issues so that it's not impacting them as bad.
2: That's where exactly. the teaching component comes in, I think, in regard to the sexual sexual, the psychoeducation to yeah. let them know there are alternative ways. Yeah.
1: Let's let's define sexual abuse too, because that's that's another component I think we need to kind of mention a little bit more. How do we define sexual abuse because i know some individuals have come in and with i'm working with them and they indicate and again there's both sides on this they indicate there's sexual abuse mm-hmm. but technically it wasn't it's it, it and this is that dilemma where sometimes you can feel like something might have happened and it yeah. might have not versus kind of you know it, you don't think it has but it definitely has been so we want to you know how do we how do we want to define sexual abuse.
0: Well, I think a a big piece of it is going to be interpretation, how the how the person or the client interprets what's happened to them. And then getting curious about that, because yeah, maybe it wasn't sexual abuse, or maybe, you know, in their mind, it was well, how is it that became sexual abuse for them? Like, well, I guess the
1: lens would be also legally because I guess yeah. you know if you feel that it's been sexual abuse, but it doesn't meet the the requirements of the legal system, yeah. then it yeah. doesn't doesn't define sexual abuse, even though it might feel like it, because yeah, cons- consent is what I would say the first process comes in is you know has their consent been given? Because sometimes consent can be given, but it wasn't for what you actually got, yeah, or can you know it was consent was indirectly given. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not stopped, but something happened. And therefore, it may have been technically okay, but you were uncomfortable, but you went along with it anyway. And so this is where you get into that expressed informed consent is usually yeah. the best, best practice. But mm-hmm. you know, nothing usually happens in that. It rarely happens in that best practice, I wish it did. Mm. And so now we get into those gray zones where you know it was uncomfortable and then at what point does it become again I, i don't
0: think we can always necessarily rely on the legal definition because the law follows the people i mean things have to happen people have to learn new things and then the law gets updated the law is always behind the people not ahead of the people so you know, as we learn more about the impacts of trauma on people, that's going to impact how we're defining what's traumatic and what, you know, sexual abuse is or what sexual assault is. I don't know the legal definition off by heart. Um, And so that's why I'm saying like, you have to work. Because we can
1: also have, you can have sexual abuse and have it not be traumatic. And legally, it would still be kind of a definition of sexual abuse.
0: Or you can have some form of abuse, but it doesn't quite meet the criteria for the law. But it's still abuse. Right. So it's, I mean, yes, keep the legal definition in mind, but I'm gonna work with where the client is at, what are their symptoms, what is their perspective. Because right or wrong, whether or not it it happened or it didn't, they're it, having it, the symptoms. As
1: long as they're experiencing that that symptoms, we want to work with that. Yes. But I guess there's a different because sometimes when we're looking at psychological versus legal,
0: yeah. there's a
1: there's a crossover in there and they don't always oh, yeah. agree. And so it's just making sure, you know, is this a legal issue versus a psychological issue? And then kind of scoping that out, because it's important just to be able to work on those issues. Yes. From both sides, and they might run very differently. I think legally, yeah, something legally that a lawyer might say, your psychologist might say that's, you know, going against best practice.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. So, So, I mean, dealing with sexual abuse can be, again, from that first question would either be, do you have to decide if you're going down the legal path or down the psychological path? Or and those both. will have two different yeah you can do both and those will have uh, two different processes and then why why did i let it happen constantly and for so long
0: because the number one goal of the human being is to survive i mean i've i've known people over the years i've been doing this for oh god 10 years or more i can't remember um about 10 years let's say and um i've had some clients you know who've been abused from the age of 2 till they were 21 by a grandfather.
1: So they've been right? groomed or trained they've in that They've been pattern. groomed or
0: trained. or But the thing is, is that there's like, kind of guessing that whole thing of that Stockholm syndrome, right? That trauma bond that you develop in that, you know, to in order to survive a sexually abusive situation, not only, you know, do you have to survive, but you actually have to bond, like have an attachment with that person because not only can they, you know, from an attachment point of view, annihilate you, because let's face it, if you, as as a child, you are rejected by a primary caregiver, you will die. Like, look at, you know, if you, if you think of like an infant, they can't survive on their own, a toddler can't survive on their own. So failure to attach to a caregiver means death, literally. Um, And so kind of at an intrinsic level, we know that and we bring that forward into adulthood. And so Know trauma survivors have to attach to their abuser in many situations, so now we're kind of getting into that, uh, that I guess quagmire or you know, whatever you want to call it, where you know they are attached and they do have some positive feelings for the abuser, but it's because they had to do that in order to survive, because if they would have left they'll die so they have to submit it's going back to that submission submission is a survival skill and we do carry those skills with us forward in life and so if the abuse keeps happening yeah that's why the person is staying because there's some intrinsic fear that if i don't stay i will die
1: there could be some personality dynamics, too, I think, you know, yeah. if there's a level of assertiveness, but the ones you mentioned are the major ones. Yeah, the reason would be, well, I can't stop thinking about it that That sounds like that classic trauma response.
0: Well, the intrusive or, memories, right? the intrusive thoughts
1: or still unresolved issues that is bugging They know it's wrong, but so it's what's what's happening there. Yeah, so This would be a nice, really important case to say is definitely seek therapy or yes. or a professional be able to help resolve that because it sounds like it's bothering this person quite a bit.
2: All right, so question three, I have memories in my childhood, such as vaginal itching and bleeding, afraid of a specific preschool, having a sex drive since I was four years old, and I struggled with depression, anxiety, self, self-esteem, self et cetera, for as long as I can remember. I don't remember
0: any specific abuse, but is it still possible? Yeah, you don't, the, we talked about uh, briefly about memories, Um, I know that prior to, you know, I did say prior to age nine, it's normal to have memory gaps. Um, But I think with any type of abuse, no matter what your age, it's normal to have memory gaps about it or to not remember it at all.
1: Yeah, I think there's usually before age of four, people may have flash memories. So they're very, very hard to have any significant memories prior to four. Mm -hmm. And I think there's other things that might cause this, but I mean, it, it sounds like Yes, that it's definitely possible. Like causes of itching can be, you know, yeast infections in girls when they're young. And it's not uncommon for children to have a sex drive when they're young, so those would be too. But I guess the question is we're kind of wanting to watch what types of behaviors that sex drive looks like, whether they're kind of, you know, predatory or abusive or self, you know, inflicting damage. The frequency we're trying to look at. So those are the things we want to look at that. Yeah, Um, the, you know, the fear of that specific preschool could be related to this, it could also be related to just a bad teacher or a bad experience in that school separate.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think so the biggest thing with this is just, you know, to get curious, you know, and find out, okay, so you don't have the memories, that's okay, because we can still have body memory too. So I know you mentioned like visual memory kind of prior to age four. So visual memory developmentally comes online about the age of two. Verbal memory doesn't start coming online to about the age of five. So anything that happens prior to age of five, you're going to remember, but it's going to be non-verbally or, you know, visual snippets. So um, you're going to remember through physical sensations or, you know, um, that interoception, which is kind of that internal sense that I, I mentioned before. So there is memory there. It's just, you don't have the language for it. And so I think that can make it really difficult for people um because they're like well i don't remember anything or i can't tell you what happened to me so i guess it didn't happen
1: i think it's also important to maybe talk with your family members or uh, around that time to kind of see what information they remember or know to Mm -hmm. kind of line up those memories to see how they compare with your perceptions of them because sometimes perceptions can be flawed too
2: yeah for sure for sure uh question number four i recently found out my 15 year old male friend was raped when he was six What can I do to help him open up about
0: this and also get him to feel better about himself overall? That's a really tough one. So at the age of 15, uh, if he's just your friend, I wouldn't say you necessarily have a legal requirement to report that. However, if you're a teacher or an adult um, or like in any helping profession, there is a legal requirement to report that because that child is a minor
1: well i mean because it, it was also years ago so there's that you know this is something to get involved you know is that child still uh, being raped I mean, this would be you'd want to make sure their parents know because then this process needs to kind of be explored because the, the parents still have consent and that 15 year old has to now decide
0: uh i don't know if right you got to find out more information before letting the parents know because it might be the parents
1: right so i mean you want to know that if it wasn't yeah. the parents you know we 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 want to know there's this requires there's a whole bunch of new legal dynamics in this one due to age yeah age of when it happened age of the current age because it's no longer a risk but they're still kind of underage and sexual abuse of a minor so we want to kind of explore some of those again legal options so that we can ensure the ensure the safety of that child and or you know what risks, risks are happening and then you know i guess the question also as you were mentioning you know he doesn't necessarily have to open about the open up about it, but it might be a good thing because it all depends on what he's wanting to do about it.
0: Yeah. And how is it,
1: how is it impacting his life now? Um,
0: You know, But these aren't questions necessarily for a friend to ask, right? So Thank you. That's where I
2: was going, right? Because we need to be really considerate and concerned for the friend. She may want to help, which is lovely. She might want to open up, which is great. But then she also could be put in a risk for vicarious trauma. There may be things that she should not be hearing that can really affect her down the road. And at the age of 15, I mean... I've got a teenager at home. She thinks she knows everything that's going on in the world. And of course unfortunately, she does. She knows.
0: Right? She does smart. not.
2: And there are things <laughs> that 15 year olds shouldn't really know. So that's also
0: something to take into consideration. Yeah. So I think, if you know, if I was to give, you know, direct advice to this friend, I would say, you know what, if, you know, if your friend disclosed that to you, be like validated, be like, wow. You know, thank you for sharing that with, with me. That must be really hard. I'm so sorry that happened to you. And then say, you know, Obviously, don't use my words because I use therapist words, but it would be like, you know, is there anything you know that you need from me in terms of offering you support? But then for that person, you know, that friend to know that you do have limitations in terms of what you can offer. So if they ask you for something that you feel you don't know how to give or can't give, you can say, Wow, you know, if I could, I'd really like to do that for you, but I'm not sure how to do that. Have you thought about maybe telling someone who can? do that for
1: you. So I think this is where we need that responsible adult. Yes. Be involved in here because it doesn't have to be their parent given the circumstance. Yeah. But we need a responsible adult involved in this due to their being a minor. Well, why don't we close up for this and just kind of do some summaries.
0: Okay. Well, thanks for having me actually. uh, So good good to have you here. Great information. Thank you so much for sharing
2: that.
1: So just to kind of summarize some of the key points that we've learned from this process. I think the the first one that I've kind of or would like to just comment on would be, you know, the I guess looking at the differences between when we're looking at kind of sexual abuse and trauma, which may be a a consequence of that sexual abuse, is that, you know, there are two kind of lenses you need to look at this one from a legal and one from a psychological and they don't always align. And you have to decide, you know, if you're going to do one, either or both of this process. And who to consult and talk to about that, which may be, again, you know, a lawyer, the police versus a therapist or kind of a supportive, uh, supportive person. That's one.
2: Agreed. I think uh, another one, too, is really knowing the difference between that big T trauma and the little T trauma. And people need to realize that you can have a lot of that little T trauma and it can really still make a huge and profound Effect on your life, and so when people kind of slough off the little stuff, oh well, that happened, but it you know it happens to everybody. Well, it may be so, but it's how you really interpret it and how you internalize it. So we have to really be aware.
1: Yeah, it can still wear away on you.
2: Hundred percent, yes.
1: And that there's also different symptoms that may occur and cross occur, and so don't I guess make sure not to assume that because you have depression or anxiety or or you know trust issues that it's because of trauma. But really take the time to explore that, you know, understand it, find out what's going on, talk with your either, you know, your partners, your therapist, your your friends to be able to explore some of those if it's impacting because some individuals can go through stuff and it may not really impact them significantly. And some people can go through stuff and have it just wreak havoc on their lives.
2: Absolutely. yeah. I think another important thing to to really take out of this is, you know, it, there may be sexual abuse, and some people may interpret that as traumatic, and others may not interpret it as traumatic. But there's st- the symptoms are still there. So sometimes we can deal um, just with the symptomology that the that the client is having, and it may not be traumatic, and that's okay. But it's there's no real right or wrong symptoms if they're there. We're I mean, we've got the possibility to deal with them, and that's really important as well.
1: And then I think the other, I mean, again, you know, we're in the field naturally. So again, you know, making sure that we're seeking that help that, you know, that supportive environment um, so that we can kind of address those issues and that there are many causes for some of these uh, behaviors and to again, explore those.
2: hundred percent. Yeah. This is a, this is a big topic really. You bet. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. This was a good one.
1: That's the wrap up then.
2: (laughs) Wrap it up. No, this was a good one. There's just so much information on this topic. We might have to do a secondary one. I
1: guess we're done. Take care. Have a good day.